0: This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRFM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Matthew Cobb. Matthew is an evolutionary neurobiologist and a historian. He's also a professor of zoology at the University of Manchester in the UK. Matthew joined me for an in-depth conversation about his book, The Idea of the Brain, A History. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 FM with me, Amy Mullins. And I'm delighted now to welcome onto the show Matthew Cobb. He is a professor of zoology at the University of Manchester. He is an evolutionary neurobiologist and uh, he's also a historian as well. He's the author of a new book called The Idea of the Brain, A History, which is out in the UK through Profile Books. And um, Matthew is joining me to talk about this really fascinating book that he's written. It's a very extensive book in terms of the ground that it covers. And so I want to say, first of all, thank you very much, Matthew, for joining us and also for joining us from where you are in Manchester in the UK. Uh,
1: Thank you very much for the invitation, Amy. I wish I was down there in the warm because it's cold and damp up here. Yeah. and we've got the virus and you've cracked it yeah. so all I'm very jealous of you for two reasons <laughs> <though>. <laughs> well
0: I would love to be over in the UK in winter so there's a little bit of jealousy but I don't want to get well, coronavirus so I think there's, I'll pass there's no snow it's
1: not that interesting it's just kind of uh, unpleasant
0: we'll have to wait till January maybe yeah so I'm really excited about this book because well two reasons one Kind of personal bias is that um, this book is, although it sounds, you know, quite scientific and we're talking about the brain and neuroscience, it has uh, such a rich humanities approach to it. And you're talking about something that is far more than just facts and dry science this is a, a much bigger story and one that is both analytical but also something where you are taking a step back and looking at the big picture of how you know humans have studied the brain and thought about the brain and also how it is connected to the human body yeah so before we get into that part i did want to well maybe we can do it in two parts um first of all i did want to understand why you made this kind of approach to the brain. Um, and maybe that is relating to your professional background. But um, I also yeah wanted to bring in your professional background, if that is relevant to that answer.
1: Well, I think, you know, you, you, you only really understand things if you understand how they came to be. Uh, and that's as true for an organism, for a species, as it is for an idea or you know anything to do with human society. You need to understand the origins uh, and the course of development of anything. And I think that's equally true of science and of its understanding of all sorts of phenomena. Because the thing about science, I mean, I am a scientist, I'm trained as a scientist, I'm also very interested in history and done lots of work in that field. But the thing about science is that it simultaneously has two things about it. On the one hand, it's very, very confident that what it knows is true. And so scientists will defend the facts. But we also know that those facts and our theories change over time. So we've got this kind of weird contradiction between, on the one hand, being very, very convinced that this is what we know, and on the other hand, knowing that, well, we didn't know that yesterday, and we're going to know something else tomorrow, and so it's actually changing. And I think this, uh, what a philosopher would call this dialectic, this interplay between knowledge and uncertainty, uh, is actually at the heart of the scientific process. And what I was trying to get over in the book was to explain to the the general reader how this has worked through our ideas, our thinking about what the brain is and what it does and where thought comes from. And in particular, how our ideas about that have been shaped not primarily by scientific discovery, but by a framework, an interpretative framework, which is really a metaphor, a series of metaphors that we use, or have used and are continuing to use about what the brain does. And that those metaphors generally come from technology. So, you know, the most modern one that we use is the brain is brain is a computer or is like a computer. And I wanted to explore how that had changed over time, where these ideas came from, and what were the the thing about metaphors is that they kind of shape your thinking. And so they're very, very powerful and they enable you to explore ideas and concepts and even to think of experiments, but they also at some point will become a a limit and a framework and and a, a way, you know, these are barriers that stop you from thinking some things because you're thinking about the brain in a certain way or whatever, the heart or any organ or, you know, any animal or structure or whatever. So science in general uses metaphors. And I think, and this is something that philosophers and historians of science have been very interested in. And I wanted to kind of bring this idea uh, to the heart of modern debates about the brain. But to do that, I needed to put it all in context, in historical context.
0: Absolutely. And um, it's so true that uh, not only scientists using metaphors, but indeed doctors as well, given they're practitioners of science, they seem to use metaphors a lot to explain different things to patients, which it'd be great to explore the computer metaphor in more depth a little bit later on. But I did want to bring you to the early part of your book first to talk about the introduction, but also the prehistory. You say in chapter one that you're really looking at um, not only prehistory, but all the way up until the 17th century, which is quite a span of time. And one of the, well, it seems like the main concept when we were talking about how people were conceiving of the way that thoughts can arise and how a body might work was to focus a great deal of attention on the heart. So I did want to ask about how it was that people started to make a connection between the human heart and human thought and emotion and, of course, the other kind of physiological elements that come along with that that humans would experience. Well,
1: if you think about it, the most obvious place that you'd want, if you were going to locate thought, feelings, emotion, anywhere, you wouldn't put it in your head. And that's, you know, the idea that the head and the brain has anything to do with uh, thought and perception and all the rest of it is a very, very recent idea as far as I've been able to tell in the history of humanity. So we've got a problem in trying to reach back deep into the, the past because primarily we have to rely on written records. And if you look at the oldest writings that have survived, uh, the stories, the Epic of Gilgamesh, or the uh, early early part of the the Old Testament, for example, all they refer to is the heart, or occasionally the liver or other organs. The brain doesn't appear anywhere in those uh, early writings. Emotion, feelings are situated in the heart, and the reason for this, I think, is relatively straightforward because because that's what it feels like. Mm. I mean, if you're excited. You don't feel it in your head. You feel it in your body, in various bits of your body. If you're frightened, you know, your guts will start churning. You might, you know, and you'll start sweating. And it's a corporeal, a bodily experience. It's not a cerebral one. It's not floating around in your head. And uh, indeed, in in the 19th century, many anthropologists went and talked to indigenous peoples in the Americas and discussed with them their worldview and so on. And they all... Up and down the Americas, North and South America, reported that the indigenous peoples thought in different ways, but they all thought that the heart was the center of spirit, of feeling and emotion. And I tried to kind of trace this through various parts of the world, because I'm very aware that the story of science is basically the story of, you know, the, the West. It's the story of Europe and America primarily so I knew where I was going to end up focusing on scientific discoveries and I wanted to understand what what globally we could get from old ideas and equally in China uh, they were not interested in the brain at all until about the 17th century this wasn't seen as being the center of of, of thought and then it struck me that in fact uh, I I didn't know anything about Australia about what the uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island peoples would have thought about where their ideas, where their emotions lay. And I found it incredibly hard to actually find out. I got out a big book of Aboriginal culture, an encyclopedia, a big two-volume book of that, and went through that. And the brain was barely mentioned in there and only in kind of technical terms. And in terms of culture, uh, it just was completely absent. Eventually, I managed to uh, have a an email conversation with a uh, an Australian scholar of uh, Aboriginal culture, and she said to me, "Well, if you asked a, a question, you said of an Aboriginal person, well, what, where is your thought? Where's your thought in your body? Where's it coming from? That question wouldn't mean anything. It, they wouldn't probably wouldn't say it's in the heart because the ideas of land, place, and spirit." And body are all intertwined in Aboriginal culture in a way that isn't the case uh, in other parts of the world where you would locate definitely, well, my emotions are in my heart, for example. Mm. So I thought that was very interesting, but I've been unable to pursue it any further. But in general, very few people, as far as I can see, around the world until the ancient Greeks ever thought that the brain and the head had anything to do with anything, because that's not how it feels. That's not what our everyday experience tells us, our everyday experience tells us that it's part of bits of your body that are doing the feeling and the emoting, it's not your head.
0: Yes, I mean, to me, it makes a lot of sense because even your heart rate drastically changes depending on your emotions or, you know, your response to a certain environmental situation or your own thoughts, in fact. So yeah, it does make a a huge amount of sense from that experiential point of view. I want to ask about the the moment in the fifth century when there was the first recorded challenge to that global heart-centered view. And um, obviously it occurred in ancient Greece, which is really fascinating. And there were uh, numerous philosophers and thinkers who were engaged in thinking about thoughts and obviously for <laughs> clear reasons. But what was that first challenge. And what did that spark off in ancient Greece? Because I'm aware that it did kind of spark a a bit of a debate and Aristotle decided to put his head in there too.
1: Well, yeah, people started to there are a series of, of, of events happened around and when you say the fifth century, fifth century before the common era, so you know four hundred, five hundred, four hundred BCE, mm. um, so two and a half thousand years ago. This is the first recorded instance we have of somebody or people thinking, well, maybe it's not the heart that's the centre of things, uh, and the the people who we generally call Hippocrates. So Hippocrates is taken as being the founder of medicine in some ways. This was, in fact, a collective name. Although Hippocrates does seem to have existed, a group of physicians on the island of Kos in uh, ancient Greece wrote under that name, or their writings uh, uh, use that name, and they suggested that epilepsy was a disease of the brain. Now, why they thought that isn't very clear, but that that was their that was their suggestion, and a number of people were then began to look at the fairly obvious point about, well, where are all the sense organs? And the sense organs, like the eyes and so on, are all, all in the head. And their connection by what the Greeks called neurons, which just meant fibre, clearly go to the brain they don't seem to go to the heart so some very primitive dissections of animals which are probably based just on you know what you could see if you split a a sheep's head open and started poking about inside it there's no this wasn't initially human dissections people began to think well maybe it's the the head is actually playing a role and in particular this very complicated squishy thing that's in the top which is the brain now, as you say, Aristotle uh, poo pooed this. Aristotle was a very significant figure. And he said, you must be joking. Uh, the brain, its sole function is to cool things. And the reason he argued that this was that, exactly as you said, that the heart changes, uh, it moves, it changes its speed. Motion was seen as being one of the essential characteristics of matter and of life in particular. And the brain didn't seem to do anything. It just sits there and is, as I say, it's kind of squishy and it's very convoluted and complicated, but it didn't seem to be doing anything when anything was going on, whereas your heart is clearly responding in all sorts of ways. And that argument basically couldn't be resolved, even when uh, a couple of centuries later in Egypt, physicians started to actually carry out dissections of human bodies and to look at the human brain and this confirmed what people had seen in the animals that is that all your these fibers these neurons go from your eyeball for example they go to your your brain they don't go down to your heart but that didn't actually resolve the issue because there's no this doesn't prove anything it's simply saying well there's one kind of system this connection up in your head But on the other hand, your heart's doing all this stuff. So Aristotle's ideas continued to be extremely dominant. Uh, And of course, for most ordinary people around the world who weren't party to all this uh, complicated philosophizing, most ordinary people carried on thinking, well, yeah, it's my heart. And the only attempt to resolve this experimentally came in the first century In which uh, Galen, who was the founder of what passed for medicine in the West for about two millennia, incredibly important thinker, as well as being uh, the founder of medicine. He he actually did a a rather gruesome experiment, which I'm not going to describe in any detail. But what he was able to show was that if you stop the heart from beating, an animal would carry on making noises, whereas if you pushed on its brain it would go unconscious. So he showed experimentally that the brain was fundamental to producing the the voice, as he called it, to making a noise. And that was clearly a pretty significant thing. It showed that you could your heart could stop, but you carried on functioning. But despite this fairly clear experimental evidence, which was very well known for the next 1,500 years, the argument carried on because there wasn't anything decisive to actually show how on earth the brain was doing what it was doing. And the resolution of this issue, at least for intellectuals in, in the West, actually took millennia. It was only in the late 6th, 17th century that people really became convinced that it was the brain that was what was produced in some mysterious way that you couldn't define was producing thought and was responsible for our our feelings. I think the main thing to get over is that there there was no brain-centric moment. There wasn't, you know, no apple fell from a tree and somebody said, oh, it's obviously the brain. Look, here's a bit of evidence. Instead, there's this slow accumulation of increasingly detailed anatomical stuff from the 15th century onwards where people said, well, you know, that the heart is... This muscle with a load of nerves around it, whereas the brain is got all the connections from all the sensory organs and it is unbelievably complicated. And then at the beginning of the 17th century, uh, it was shown by William Harvey that the heart basically is a pump, which is it's kind of a weird pump, but it's a pump. It's just there to pump your, your blood around. It's not doing anything else apart from that, whereas the brain with all these connections, that it, it seemed clearer, more likely that the brain was doing this mysterious thing of producing mind, uh, than the heart, which, like I say, was just this squishy muscle that did this rhythmic pulsing business. And we, we can actually see this argument in Shakespeare. So you've got to remember Shakespeare's plays were very much done for the general public. And in one of the, the, the songs in uh, Twelfth Night, then one of the, the singers says, tell me where is fancy bread, in the heart or in the head? So fancy being ideas. Mm.
0: Uh,
1: and this would have been, you know, the, the, this would have been recognised by the, what they call the groundlings who in Shakespeare's day in the Globe, you know, you'd have all the, the ordinary people would be standing up watching the, the play. And this song would have been understood by them. They would have got, well, you know, these clever people still don't know where ideas come from. Are they coming from the heart or are they coming from the brain? Uh, But by the end of the 17th century, it was pretty much resolved for Western thinkers, at least, that it was the brain. But this was more a matter of exclusion. Well, the heart's just a muscle and the brain's really complicated and has got all these connections. Therefore, it must be the, the brain that's actually doing this. But, you know, this is an incredibly slow process. And for most people still... The heart was the, the the key thing. And we can see this in our language. You can see this in English. You wear your heart on your sleeve. My heart was in my mouth. I was downhearted. All these phrases, and they're the same in every language, has them. If you put brain in there, <laughs> it just sounds stupid. Yeah. So we've still got these linguistic fossils that are telling us the old ways of thinking. And not just that they're old ways, but that they have a reality For us today, because that's our actual experience is not of the brain as being this little computer sitting in your head. As a a very famous article in neuroscience at the end of the 20th century had it, the brain has a body and the the connection between the two of them is extremely important. Uh, many modern neuroscientists tend to just think of the brain as this uh, set of neural networks unconnected with the, the reality of uh, uh, of the body within which it sits. And I, I think that's a big mistake because both our everyday experience and the way that any brain is working is it, it, it's not a thing in a vat. It's actually interacting continually with the outside world. And wh- one of its main functions is to Make the body of whatever organism, whether it's a a fly or a human, is to make the body do things, is to respond to that world, the interior and exterior world, and to make things happen in those worlds by acting upon them, by eating or whatever.
0: Mm. Well, there are also a lot of automatic things that the brain is doing and sending signals out down the spinal cord and to different areas. Of course, the autonomic system being a really critical part of that and regulating heartbeat and heart rhythm, for example. So there's so many different ways that things are happening that we may not really realize if we haven't done you know, neuroscience or (laughs) studied our own biology and we don't realize just how interconnected all these things are.
1: Yeah, indeed. And uh, many of the the basic processes, and this is how people with brain damage can, can stay alive in uh, deep comas because their body's going to carry on doing the basic functions uh, without them being aware of it. And this, I mean, you just think what happens, that mysterious thing when you go to sleep. I mean, sleep (laughs) remains. There's not much about it in the book, sadly, uh, but it remains an absolutely mysterious but clearly fundamental thing. So your consciousness, uh, your awareness goes away. You may have a dream, which is in itself extremely weird. Um, And then you wake up and your consciousness comes back. And in between time. Your body's been doing all sorts of stuff without you being aware of it in the slightest. Mm. It's very, very odd. The same thing happens if you have an anaesthetic, you have a general anaesthetic. You go away and then you come back. We, we don't know how general anaesthetics work. We know they do work <laughs> and you can trust the anaesthetist, but they don't understand how those gases that we inhale or those substances that are injected into us, uh, how they remove consciousness... And then enable it to come back in pretty much the same state. This is a very, very strange phenomenon.
0: Mm. It's disturbing, really, to think that we don't actually know. But the well,
1: it, 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 it's worrying, but it's worrying. But people shouldn't worry. I mean, it's it, it's odd. I think just say it's odd. Uh, well, and the, it's, the reason... it makes
0: you step outside yourself. I feel and to go. Oh, hang on a second. There are things we don't know that we're just doing because we know that you know they work and they're fulfilling its intended function.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a, there is a there is machine-like quality to parts of uh, human physiology that means that there are these processes that are, are trying to maintain stability inside your body, whether it's your oxygen levels or whatever. People who have sleep apnea, for example, will wake up all of a sudden They'll be in a deep sleep and then they'll suddenly wake up because their carbon dioxide levels in their blood have increased. So there are, there are kind of cellular switches uh, in your brain which will immediately return you to consciousness. So, whatever consciousness is, your brain is able, your body is able to ignite it, I suppose is the best way by that level of carbon dioxide and it will make you wake up. That's why people sleep apnea wake up with a start because they need to get more oxygen, uh, into their, into their bloodstream. And this is a very, very basal, uh, phenomenon in the brain, but it's absolutely fundamental. And there are clues there, I think, uh, to eventually beginning to get to the nature of consciousness, because there are these, these very simple processes, basic physiological processes, that are to do with, uh, that, that have access. They, they can get hold of our consciousness and say, you know, shake it and say, hey, wake up, You've got to, you're going to die. Hmm. You, you need to get more oxygen inside. You need to sit up. Um, and that's kind of instantaneous. And again, it's very, very strange.
0: Yes, it is. It is very strange. One of the things that I found also quite interesting and strange was references to this idea of an animal spirit or an animation, and in the chapter on it was um, forces in the 17th and 18th century, you mention quite a few really important philosophers and also scientists and anatomists and um, microscopists, Um, and one of them obviously is someone we should all potentially know, which is René Descartes, who is a great French thinker, and I honestly wasn't aware that he had um, actually made dissections of the brain in the 1620s and 30s. I thought he was only um, engaging in the philosophizing of (laughs) a philosopher without actually practicing. So um, could you talk about some of these really vital thinkers in the 17th centuries and how they were making gains around, you know, nerves, for example, and what they were doing that was progressing things?
1: Yeah. So Descartes, as you say, was a very important uh, French philosopher, and he's the man who uh, is responsible for uh, reducing his knowledge to the most basic thing that we can possibly know, which is that we are and we are because we think. So he says cogito ergo sum. The only thing he can be absolutely confident of is that he exists because he's Mm. thinking. And then he develops the rest of his philosophical ideas on the basis of that. But as you've indicated, he wasn't just a philosopher. Uh, He was also doing some dissections of human bodies in the early uh, 17th century. And this led him to develop theories about perception and, above all, about how the spirit, what he called the spirit. So that would, I guess, the soul is the simplest way of thinking about this, where the soul interacted with the body because the body's one thing and it's this physical structure and we've got what he called the animal spirits and animal comes from animated it's nothing to do with with being having you know base ideas animalistic or (laughs) lizard brain or any of that nonsense it's none of that it's the animal spirits were the things that enabled you to move and then there was the soul which Descartes, a good Christian, was uh, believed in profoundly. And what he suggested was that there was a structure that he'd observed in his dissections of the human brain, called the pineal gland, which is right deep in the center of the brain at the bottom. Which he said, "Well, that's where the soul interacts with the body, and that's how this immaterial substance." Yes, that doesn't mean anything, but that was the phrase he used. So it's <laughs> it's an immaterial matter. Uh, the soul interacts with the uh, the rest of the body. Now, uh, unfortunately for Descartes, as soon as his work was uh, published after his death in uh, 1660, researchers immediately said, well, wait a minute, I've been dissecting cows for years and I've seen this penineal gland, so do they have souls as well? Uh, so Descartes' claim for unique this unique structure in humans was fairly quickly dissipated. But I think more significantly than that um, was his idea about, how the animal spirits worked, how nerves worked, how movement took place, because he was in the in 1630s. He was in some gardens, public gardens in Paris, and they had these rather amazing animatronic uh, statues. And these would be things like um, a dragon would emerge from the from the uh, the undergrowth and kind of flap its wings, or somebody would the statue would start playing a, a, a flute. And these all work by hydraulics. They all work by weights and water being pumped around. And you can imagine the kind of clunky movement you'd get, which would be pretty mm. impressive if you'd never seen anything before. So you imagine this kind of stop motion animation from the ni- film in the 1950s. Nowadays, you go, oh, goodness me, that's, that's pretty, pretty rubbish. I want some good CGI. But at the time, that would seem extremely lifelike. And that's exactly what Descartes thought. He looked at this stuff and knew it wasn't alive but it looked pretty lifelike and so he thought well maybe that's how the nervous system works maybe that's how nerves work there is actually a fluid in there that is going down from the brain to the sensory organs and coming back and this kind of toing and froing actually explains movement and he has this uh, picture of this giant kind of giant man baby burning his foot on uh, a fire and because you you get what we would now call a reflex response clearly if you hurt yourself then you're going to move your hand away and so he imagined that this would work along the lines of the animatronic uh, hydraulic statues that he'd seen but again uh that was his idea very good idea but it's relatively it was relatively easy to to test that hypothesis by say getting a, a frog nerve um, getting a frog, you kill the frog, you dissect it, you get dissect out the nerve. But if you chop that nerve, you don't get like, you know, a spurt of high pressure fluid coming out. There's, there's nothing in there. There is no fluid in there. And people, uh, microscopists and uh, anatomists were very soon able to show that that's not how nerves worked at all. There wasn't a high pressure inside them. So his hydraulic theory was very was absolutely cutting edge because that was the the best technology of the time. If you mm. think of the if you think of the early seventeenth century, they had very primitive clocks. they didn't yet have tiny little uh, pocket watches or anything like that. So you'd have big ticking clocks, so you could have clockwork. and for example, that was one of the metaphors that was used to explain the way that the stars seemed to move, uh, and you could actually construct little models, clockwork models of the way the universe worked. But clearly, humans and even animals weren't simply clockwork. They're, they're, they're much more irregular and less predictable than that. So a clockwork metaphor is fantastic for predicting where Venus is going to be in three weeks time in the sky. Uh, it's not very good for knowing you know, even which way a fly is going to move. It, it, it can't help you with that prediction. So hydraulic power. Which Descartes had seen in these statues—that was the kind of cutting-edge technology of the time—and that's what he used as his his metaphor. And that's the the first time, really, that uh, this connection between science and technology was really kind of welded together in understanding the brain. Uh, and I think you know people might think, well, well, Descartes was a bit of a bit of a dafty. Uh, I, we really mustn't think mm. that because what's extraordinary is that these this technology was around in ancient Greece. So there were statues that moved. There would be powered by water or by wind. They had these uh, various you know, birds that would flap their wings. I mean, beautiful mechanical objects. But none of those smart Greek philosophers actually looked at them and thought, hmm, maybe that's how animals move. None of them used that idea to think through the connection between organic life and this simulacrum, this artificial, this mechanical version. Descartes had the intelligence and the insight and the genius to be able to do that. The fact that he was wrong is bit of a bummer but uh, uh, but it's not you know i mean we're all wrong that's the whole point about the you know, ideas is that they change as we 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 challenge them with evidence and the key question is was it productive did it help people think about how uh, life might work and did it lead to more experiments it most certainly did even if they were to say well actually that's not quite right because then the problem comes well okay well if descartes wrong how do nerves work actually how 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 is it it happening that uh, this sensation seems to move down? There's something that is moving down the the nerve. Uh, One of my favorite thinkers from this time is a man called Jean Schwamedam, and he was an entomologist. We studied insects, but he was also interested in nerve function. He was one of the people who showed that Descartes was wrong about the hydraulic nature of uh, the animal spirits, and he suggested Maybe it's a bit like a, a vibration. If you hit a plank of wood, he said, then you hit it at one end and then a you know, split second later, you feel the vibration at the other end. Maybe that's what's going on is this whatever it is, is moving down the nerve. And I think one of the, 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 the strength of this, of the metaphorical ideas that are around there is we can see this uh, in, still in everyday language. So, for example, the idea of an impression oh i got the impression that he was quite nice or whatever or you know i i, I got mm. the Im- that impression that word means that people were thinking that there was a, a physical force from a sensation or from a a perception that was then f- pushing onto various sense organs and literally changing their shape that's what impression means and then in some way that changed shape was represented in the mind. And that the gap of how you get from the the physical perception to the mental Hmm. (laughs) impression, there you go, it's very difficult not to use these metaphors because they're so deeply rooted. But it's actually a physical, it implies there's a physical change taking place as we perceive the world.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. When you mentioned impression, it made me think of art and you know, leaving physical impressions on plates like engraving and that kind of thing as well and well, changing the shape of something.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That was the, the, the earliest ideas about what memory might be is, and it, it's not wrong, <laughs> you know, it's basically right, but it's at a, at a scale, uh, the conception they had was at a scale that's, it, that isn't correct, was that your brain will be somehow changing its shape And things that uh, took place kind of simultaneously would then be connected because there'd be changes in your brain that were physically close together. And they would become associated, so one thing would connect to another. And uh, one of the thinkers in the 18th century said he, you know, pre um, in an idea that actually came was 200, 200 years before Pavlov's dogs salivating when they see food. He said, "Well, yeah, that's that's why we salivate when we see food because these two things, food and uh, the taste of it, are associated." in our brains because they are physically close together because that's where the impressions were kind of formed. So we've got people, primarily philosophers, just sitting about thinking about things very, very hard and occasionally referring to uh, anatomical studies. And they've actually got some of the basis of what we would now understand, or rather we we still rely upon their insights. That's the better way of thinking mm. about it. because. One of the things I was very keen to do in the book is not to spend too much time, uh, you know, giving people marks for how right we would now perceive them, them as doing. Because one of the mistakes that I think many scientists make in, in studying the history of their science, which people do, of course, that scientists are very interested in the past because it shows how we got here, is that they see past ideas as a staging post to today, whereas to understand why people believed what they believed, you need to see them as being incredibly modern because every idea was modern in its time, was seen as the great solution to a conundrum that people were were puzzling over. And, you know, they they aren't staging posts to the future. They are simply ideas in their own right.
0: Mm. Well, they're situated in a context that is very unique to that time, and we certainly can't pass our own judgments from the 21st century looking back to the 18th century and coming from, yeah, my perspective and uh, I study the 18th century quite a lot, it still astounds me how things were different and, you know, a a foot in 18th century France was actually a different way to measure things than it is now with um, today's feet. So, you know, there are even small things you take for granted that you think would be the same and they're not. And that did make me think of the very hilarious character in the book that you also bring up, Frenchman Julien Offray de la Metrie And um, he published L'Homme Machine, which was Machine Man, and a manifesto for a new way of looking at the human mind and body. But I was particularly drawn to some of those statements that you said he made that sounded very modern, like suggesting that we might be able to teach great apes to use sign language because from animals to man, there is no abrupt transition. What was man before he invented words and learnt languages? An animal, a particular species. Yeah, it really did just make me go, oh, hang on a second. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, Lametri is quite an extraordinary man, uh, one, probably one of the people who I, I fell in love with. And I, uh, the picture of him, uh, that I include in the book, uh, I say in the caption that it looks like it'd be good to have a chat with down the pub. He looks very cheery. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was an amazingly erudite man. He got in all sorts of trouble for these ideas. Uh, I mean, his books were burned in, in Holland, which was an incredibly liberal country. These were sti- still seen as being very dangerous ideas because his ideas were fundamentally materialist, as you've suggested, that he was uh, suggesting that humans were just another kind of animal and that the body was working according to some unspecified, it must be said, machine-like basis, and hence the title of his, of, of his, uh, of his book. Now, whilst Lemaitre is an extremely attractive character, and I mean, I love his book, the, the consequences of his ideas are harder to discern. And I think that he's, although he was notorious at the time, And people were very, very worried about materialism in the 18th century, as as I'm sure you know, Amy. Uh, And people got very cross and they thought that materialism and suggesting that humans were a kind of animal would, in fact, lead to the collapse of society and morals and uh, that the world would go to hell in a handcart if it wasn't already. And indeed, some of Lametri's ideas were used in uh, 18th century pornography in particular what what we call is uh, generally known as Fanny Hill which is probably the rudest book in the English language it was how oh, it's astounded <laughs> to see that it was only uh, finally published in an ex- un- unexpurgated version in the UK in 1970 um, I mean it is a very very rude book <laughs> and uh, <laughs> there bits of this are in, bits of Lametrie's ideas are included in the in the in in, in, in Fanny Hill by John Cleland, Memoirs of a Woman of Pleasure, I think it's called, Uh, and uh, so the morality and concern about um, people's place in society, about sexuality, and about materialism are all kind of mixed up in these fears uh, and excitement uh, in the 18th century, in, in, in Europe at least, and although Lemaitre had this influence and was 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 known at the time by the 19th century he kind of disappeared from i think uh, people's reading so for example darwin who you might have expected would say well yes my ideas about the continuity of humans and animals uh you can see this in Lemaitre's thoughts from the 18th century I, i'm not aware that darwin ever knew that Lemaitre existed never mind uh reading his his work so It's an example of one of these kind of um, figures who seem to be incredibly prescient and to have something to say to us, but don't directly seem to have influenced the subsequent course of events.
0: Yes, it's interesting to see that, you know, there are some of these people who are exceptionally creative or um, innovative in a particular field, and yet they're not the ones who've actually created or catalyzed the change in a particular field, even though they look like they would have been the most obvious suspect based on what followed. Um, So, yeah, what a, a fascinating area of study. I want to draw our attention to something which becomes critical to the development of our understanding and um that is electricity given that actually I guess electrical pulses in a way are part of our understanding of how things work that's probably a very simplistic way of describing it but um neurotransmitters and a whole range of other kind of things are involved in how nerves work. But what was the influence of this understanding of the battery and electricity and um, and how that started to have an influence on how scientists started to think about the brain and to think about the nervous system?
1: Well, electricity ended up uh, resolving Descartes' problem, I guess, uh, in that Descartes suggested nerves work by uh, having this kind of hydraulic fluid in it. That wasn't the case. And when electricity was not really discovered, is it? Mastered, I suppose, and discovered in the second half of the 18th century, it fairly quickly became apparent that it wasn't just a matter of power of lightning, but that bodies would respond to electricity. This might be, for example, people very soon were able to store electricity, but they couldn't store it and give a continuous discharge. This would be all of a sudden you'd get a bit like a lightning bolt. So one philosopher got, I think, there were 400 monks uh, to hold hands and then discharged and left one of these uh, uh, laden jars, they were called, which were containers that uh, held an electric charge until you touched them. And then they, you got a shock. And all these four hundred monks jumped one after the other as the electric shock went down the uh, the line. So the question was: you could see this in uh, in uh, in frogs' legs as well. They would twitch, for example, if there was a, a thunderstorm. About the question was: was electricity in the body, or was electricity just a very powerful irritant? And resolving that was really quite tricky. And it was only when uh, you ended up with batteries which can give a continuous charge rather than kind of an instantaneous one, that people began to become more confident that nervous systems worked along a kind of electricity. And I think it's worth saying just very briefly where batteries came from, because this was one of the things I didn't know uh, when I before I wrote the book and was quite astounded by. So it was a big argument about whether uh, electricity was innate in bodies or whether it was, um, uh, whether it was, Simply an irritant. And uh, a man called Volta became very convinced that bodies didn't have an innate electricity. And to try and sort this out, he decided to build a a model of what uh, was known as the electric organ in electric fish, so fish that give you an electric shock. And he saw anatomically that this was kind of a, a series of layers, and he decided to build a version of this in uh, using cardboard and different kinds of metals and acids. And effectively, he created the battery. So the battery we have today, which gives that continuous discharge, was based on an anatomical structure from an animal. And that basically changed the whole, that was discovered at the beginning of the 19th century. And that changed everything. Because now, rather than just having one kind of flash of electricity, you could now give continuous discharges and try and see what what happened and what that led to was some fairly gruesome uh, experiments mm. um, in which people would get one of these batteries and then put them, for example, on the side of the, the head of a recently decapitated cow, and the cow's eyes would roll and its tongue would come out, and this would carry on for quite some time. You could even uh, do this with a human being, and this wasn't done in public, but uh, there were cases where Criminals who'd just been hanged were then immediately taken into a small room where a group of learned gentlemen could then observe quite terrifying apparent resuscitation of this person. Because, of course, put electrodes with a, a continuous current onto a body and it will start twitching and moving, and arms will flail and so on. And one of the demonstrations of this power of electricity to move bodies. Uh, was done at the Royal Institution in London and uh, a young girl called Mary Godwin was in the audience apparently. Uh, She later wrote a rather famous book uh, called Frankenstein when under the name Mary, her married name Mary Shelley Mm. and it's almost certain that she was inspired uh, by this uh, early piece of kind of horror science fiction uh, by the things that she'd seen, these the, the ability of electricity to apparently resuscitate life, which she would only have seen in uh, with animals. But the, these were things that were shown, you know, you could go to the theatre and see one of these displays. So it, this entered into popular culture and, of course... Mary Shelley's book did a great deal. There's no mention of electricity in there. Actually, it's very strange. She doesn't actually say how Frankenstein creates uh, his monster, how he animates it. But the implication, I think, for everybody was that it was electricity. But you've then got a problem: is that well, how is this actually working? What? Okay, so electricity. It was finally resolved that there is something electrical in nerves. In fact, it's more complicated than that. It's electrochemical because. It doesn't move at the same moves much slower speed. Nerve impulses are much much slower than electrical impulses going down a wire. This was worked out in the middle of the 19th century. So people were scratching their head, and the issue of how nerves send those impulses was only finally resolved in the 1950s. I mean, it's a it's a really really complicated problem to a lot of very smart people. A lot of thinking. Yeah. But what that people then began to think about once electricity was then applied. You get the telegraph system. So you got very quickly from the late 1830s onwards, you get this means of communication around whole continents. And people drew a literal parallel between the telegraph system and the nervous system in the body. And it went both ways. So people argued that messages were moving up and down the nerves, just like messages went along the telegraph system. But they also said that the telegraph system in a country was effectively the nervous system of the, of the body, with information moving up and down and the brain, which was generally the capital, controlling the provinces, which were the limbs of the, this kind of representation, uh, literally the body politic of a particular country. So we get this intertwining of metaphors in both science and politics of the telegraph. And that lasts for about 30 or 40 years. And then we get a new form of technology with the development of the telephone exchange, which unlike the telegraph, which can only go from A to B, you send a telegram from you know, your office, telegram office, and it goes to the, the one in the, the capital city. It doesn't go any further. It's a, a thick, two fixed points. But a telephone exchange, that's flexible. You phone up the operator and you ask to be put through to a particular number and the operator will then connect you to that number. Or you could be connected to another number or you could go to a different city. And that's much more like what nervous systems seem to do, because even the simplest organisms, even insects, aren't behaving in a kind of clockwork way, which is basically all that you've got with a, a telegraph system. So then the telephone exchange became the dominant metaphor for how the, the brain might work. And um, amazingly, I saw this about two years ago in a leading neuroscience journal in uh, some big cheese neuroscientists said, yeah, well, basically the brain is like a telephone exchange. And I thought, what? This is you know, <laughs> 140 years old, this metaphor. It's not right, but... I thought it was amazing that it was still oh. floating about in people's heads as a way of trying to explain flexible choices that you might make.
0: That is very funny. Um, it's really interesting because it seems like there's a big leap and there is a big leap really between that time that we're talking about and you know the mid-20th century and the kind of gains that we made up till that point and then there seems to be another kind of leap or perhaps not even we've made much of a leap. That's the another part that I was interested in, in your section about present understanding. And you were talking about a conference on neural circuits uh, in Washington, D.C. And um, you were talking about the conceptual innovations that we had made in the last 30 years. And one of your colleagues said, none. And you said, Adam was wrong, but only because he did not go far enough. In reality, no major conceptual innovation has been made in our overall understanding of how the brain works for over half a century. Which, you know, that is pretty (laughs) staggering. It's a very
1: provocative comment. I
0: It is, I liked it though.
1: A lot of colleagues get cross when they read that kind of thing. And then they think about it and see what I mean. I'm not Mm. saying we haven't made any discoveries or anything like that. But what's very striking is that in the middle of the 20th century, in the 1940s and early 1950s, we, one, became aware of the existence of neurotransmitters. So we know how neurons are, are, are talking to each other and the nature of the signal that's going down, the electrochemical signal that's going down those those uh, neurons. So we know that the basic jiggery-pokery of uh, what's going on in our brains. Above all, people began to conceptualize what was going on, that the brain was carrying out computations of some kind. And that's why the that the brain-computer metaphor kind of took hold because people thought, well, we're really carrying out some kind of computations, even at the most basal level of the nervous system, this may, we might be able to represent this in terms of logic uh, that neurons will respond if they are stimulated by one neuron or if they are stimulated by neuron one and neuron two or neuron two. So there's basic logical uh, operators, if and or, you could think about the nervous system working along those lines. And people began to conceive of the nervous system as the brain as representing the outside world in some way. And with that representation, it could then manipulate that representation, think, well, what will happen or calculate in some way? What would happen if I do this? If I you know, move in this direction, what will happen if I pick that object up, what will then be the consequence? So once you've got this idea of representation in some very poorly defined computational way, then you can operate on that. You can do calculations about it, or you can imagine that's what the brain's doing. And basically that's, that's where we still are. Mm. What's fascinating is that although this suggests that the brain is a computer, That's not how things began. What started, the the original computers, uh, going back to the 19th century, uh, were mechanical. And then in the 1930s, electronics was not yet sufficiently developed, but people began to think in a more abstract way. People like Alan Turing, but they still weren't thinking about computers in a digital way. And the first digital computers, which is the basis of the machines we're we're all using, what you and I are speaking through today, that was developed by a man called John von Neumann towards the end of the Second World War. And he took as his starting point a theoretical paper about how nervous systems function that was written in 1943. And that argued, precisely as I suggested earlier on, that nervous systems contain these logical structures Uh, And, or, if, and so on. And what von Neumann said was, look, we can use this to build a computer. We can actually build a computer that is like a brain. And that was his pitch to the American government. He says, I'm going to build you a new calculating machine, but it will be like a brain. So at the beginning, it wasn't that the brain was like a computer, Mm -hmm. it's like the, the computer was like a brain. Now, as it happens, Brains aren't wired up the way that this theoretical article argued. They're not as rigid as that. But this interaction between views of computation and logic and how machines work and how our brains might work is basically where we've been for the last 70 years. And we're we're still there. Now, that doesn't mean to say it's wrong. But what was very striking in in, in doing a lot of the reading is that a lot of neuroscientists... uh, they're feeling cramped. They're feeling frustrated. Yeah. Because we've got this, this this tsunami of data coming from various imaging studies, from those studies you see in the papers or on the web about the brain lighting up when we do things. What's called connectomics, trying to work out the, the actual wiring diagram down to the cellular level. At the moment, we can only do that in 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 very small insects. We can't do it even in a even in a mouse. Uh, So complicated is the brain, but that's the kind of direction we're working towards. So we've got all these data, and yet the theoretical framework we're working on doesn't really fit that. So Mm. there are a lot of think pieces in the neuroscience journals by leading neuroscientists going, well, we, we need a new theory. We need a new way of trying to interpret all this information. And the way I present that is as... Not the end of the computer metaphor, because brains clearly are doing some things that are a bit similar to what a machine can do. But rather, it shows we're pushing at the the limits of that metaphor today. As I said, the you know metaphors are a framework, but at some point, a framework can become a cage. You can't think outside it. You could, literally, you know, you can't imagine an experiment because you are using this not entirely accurate way of thinking about your object of study in this case the brain if you think the brain's a computer then you start to think in terms of say hardware and software and that's that's just not the case you know the way our brain works the neurons are both the software and the hardware together it's the same thing and thinking about the brain in in an overly computerly way will lead you into all sorts of dead ends, to be honest. Mm. And this is partly what I was trying to get over in the book was for the general reader. I mean, when I was writing it, my editor said at one point, he said, uh, so, so how does the brain work then? <laughs> and I, re- I, I replied, I haven't the faintest idea. He said, we can't say that. You can't. We can't have we don't know as being the kind of punchline of the book. <laughs> We're uh, not the only one. I said, well, <laughs> that's the truth. <laughs> well, you know, he, he's, he, he said you've got to have a, a, an explanation. All the books about the brain have got an explanation. I said, well, yeah, that's the problem.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, they've all got the. You know, you, there are a million and one books that will tell you out there how the brain works, mm. and they're all different. That can't be right. Uh, so what I thought I'd do was just tell tell the story honestly <laughs> that we don't know. Uh, there are lots of theories i think most of them are still suffering from being connected in too too tightly to the computer metaphor and we need we we are awaiting a new breakthrough now that might come just from some very clever people doing lots of work it might come from technology and the the past suggests that a technological breakthrough or change would provide us with new ways of thinking about what we know It's not going to change what we know, but it's going to change our interpretation. And above all, it will enable us to imagine new experiments and new ways of of thinking about things. Now, when I explain all this to, I mean, obviously philosophers and historians kind of roll their eyes and go, well, duh, that's kind of obvious, isn't it? Mm. Scientists are quite amazed by it. They get very excited because they don't (laughs) think about things that way. And then, so then they say to me, well, so what is it? What's the next big thing? To which I'm afraid my answer is that I have no idea. And if I did, I'd be very, very rich. Uh, you know, I don't know what's coming, but it's there's, there is going to be a change. We are going to alter it. might be in 10 years. It might not be for 100. Uh, but we are going to change what we know because of the development of new metaphors, new ways of thinking about what we already know.
0: And that highlights to me the vitality of the humanities and philosophy and history like you've been utilising in this book as well to enable science to come up with better metaphors as well. Um, So you really just walked into my last question perfectly. (laughs) (laughs) So I just wanted to finish on one question that has absolutely been tearing me up inside mainly because it has such a practical effect in people's everyday lives. And I'm thinking about, we've been talking about neuroscientists and of course there are people who practice medicine and study neuroscience and a lot of them are called neurologists and there's neurosurgeons as well. But a lot of that, when people are practicing medicine, for example, in the field of neurology, they're still using that computer metaphor that you've described, using those Things like saying, well, there's the hardware, which is the brain, which we can scan and we can see through an MRI. And if there's nothing wrong in the scan to see that the hardware's gone wrong, you know, maybe you've got a lesion in your brain and that would be a problem with the hardware. Well, then clearly there's a problem with your software. And there's that very stark delineation between these two things because of the, I guess, limits that we've reached with the metaphor and also the diagnostic process as well. So I did want to ask about how using this metaphor for the computer can not just have limits in the study of science in that theoretical realm, but how it might have limits in our practical everyday lives and how it may actually mean that we're not Like, clearly, we don't understand so many different neurological conditions um, that you reference throughout the book as well. And so, you know, neurologists are already dealing with, I guess, a, a lack of information and a lack of understanding. But how do we make sure that these metaphors don't also impact upon the kind of life of everyday people who might suffer from deficiencies in their brain or changes in their spinal cord?
1: Yeah, it's uh, it, it's a real problem because I think you, you put your finger on it. It's about the the diagnostics and the, the resolution of our understanding. So if somebody, uh, you know, if your physician says, well, you know, we put you through the scan and we can't see anything wrong with your brain. So uh, I'm going to prescribe some uh, cognitive behavioral therapy for your problem, whatever. That's telling us that the scan is of such a degree of crudeness that we can't see anything big and unpleasant. There's no horrible lesion or cancer or anything like that. And that's, that's good news, but clearly your, your mind is ultimately a physical thing. It is in ways nobody knows, and I have not the foggiest, uh, how it works, but it is simply the consequence of the activity of your neurons. In some way, the activity of the neurons in your brain produces consciousness and therefore perceptions, ideas, fears, and all the rest of it. We can sometimes fix that or try and resolve it. Uh, For example, one of the best drugs that we've had uh, to deal with certain forms of mental illness uh, is a common salt, lithium. And that will resolve or help people reduce certain symptoms for as long as they take it. It doesn't lead to a permanent change, it's not a cure, but it can be a treatment. On the other hand, many of our conceptions of the nature of mental health problems and of their solution have got a rather old fashioned ring to it. Uh, if you think about one of the many things that you'll hear about is, okay, well, uh, so-and-so is depressed, and that's because uh, they've got a chemical imbalance. And we need to take these particular drugs, which will increase the levels of serotonin or dopamine or whatever uh, whatever neurotransmitter uh, is the, the flavor of the month. And in fact, we're going back to, well going back to Galen, those ideas. So Galen, the uh, ancient Roman Greek Turkish physician I talked about at the very beginning, who was one of the first people to give experimental evidence that the brain is doing the thinking. He, came, he developed and elaborated the idea of the humors, that we had four humors. This was very, very big in, for 1,500 years, and that the balance of these humors could be altered by what you eat and so on, and that would then eventually change how you feel. And so, when you talk about, uh, you know, you're, you're, you've got a chemical imbalance uh, and your neurotransmitters need to be altered by taking these drugs, we're not really that far off from Galen's ideas. And the problem is, we don't actually know how most or if most of these drugs work. That having been said, a really important uh, proviso that I must say is that nobody who's listening should alter their, if they're taking any drugs for a mental health problem, Carry on taking them. If you've got any concerns, go and talk to your doctor. Don't stop taking drugs that you've been prescribed all of a sudden because it can have bad consequences. But the reality is that all of the, and it's a very depressing fact, all of the uh, major drug companies have shut down their psychiatric wings. They are, none of them are trying to develop new drugs for any of the Massive problems we know that there are around the world for depression, anxiety, and so on. They have no confidence that they're going to be able to produce a drug which will be effective and profitable. So that research is effectively stopping. Now, that leaves us, therefore, with a pretty limited armory of psychological therapy, talking therapy, and really no way forward, I think. Um, it, it's very, very alarming. Given, on the one hand, we've got a, an acceptance or a, a recognition of the significance of these problems for people all over the world. And on the other hand, not really much of a pathway forward for dealing with these everyday psychological problems. Clearly, as you've indicated, you know, if you've got some particular problem and you have a tumor, then uh, the very clever neurosurgeons can remove it and repair you. And with a bit of luck, you'll be pretty much as normal. But for the everyday debilitating problems of depression and anxiety, uh, beyond talking therapies of various kinds, I think there's there's very little that in the future that we can see at the moment. And the reason for this is that our grasp of how ideas, consciousness emerge from the activity of the neuros- nervous system remains incredibly primitive and well, very, very vague, to be honest.
0: Mm. And I think being so honest and upfront about it is one great solve to the problem. By if we pretend that we know all the answers, like you've said, you know, these people writing books about, oh, I know the answer, I know how the brain works. Well, you can end up giving people this false sense of security or a false sense of hope that, oh, well, I've solved your problem, I know what's wrong. But if we actually own up to the fact, well, these are the things we know, but these are the things we don't know for sure. I'm not the same as everyone else, but I find that quite reassuring. And I wonder if that's something that you would find reassuring and whether that, you know, has driven this book as well as to be so upfront with everyone about, you know, this is what we know, but let's be really honest about what we don't know and what what we can do about it in the future.
1: Well, it's partly a matter of honesty, but uh, from a, <laughs> a professional point of view, it's actually exciting. Yeah. Uh, so the exciting stuff about science is not stuff you know. You know, so when I get up in a lecture theatre and I tell students stuff, uh, that's stuff that you know, I've been taught a tiny, tiny little bit will be stuff I've actually discovered myself, but mainly it's stuff that other people have found out. And I will then present in as good a way as I can to the students. And that's fun. And I enjoy teaching and it's, it's great learning new stuff. But the really exciting bit is finding out stuff that nobody knows. That's the great thing about science. And I, I say it at the end of the introduction the four most important words in science are we do not know. That's what drives us forward. And what I was trying to do in the book was to, uh, in particular in the final book, so it's, it part, it's So it's divided into two halves and then a little bit more. Uh, the f- one half is past, the frameworks we've used in the past. And then as you indicated, the, the second half is about the present from 1950 onwards. And then a very brief final chapter is about the future, which was kind of scary to write because predicting the future is a, is a mugs game. And... What I was trying to do was to outline to my colleagues, but also to the general public, where I think we need to go, what kind of approach we need to adopt, and what are the key questions we might be able to resolve in the near future. For example, I'm not entirely convinced we're going to solve the problem of the nature of consciousness in the next century or two. Uh, maybe we are. Maybe the clever people are figuring that out. Are going to come up with an answer, but it doesn't look that way, mm. uh, and so we're going to remain with this mysterious knowledge that uh, it can be consciousness can be dissolved by various anesthetic gases, uh, which is telling us something, but nobody knows what. And I was trying to, you know, sketch out a, a, a re- basically a research program an approach that I think could take us forward. Now, I know that my views are not those shared by most researchers, but that's partly because, you know, we don't often sit down and think about that. Research is based on absurd three-year deadlines. So you put in a research grant, you say, I'm going to do these experiments over the next three years, and this is what I think I'll find, Mm. uh, which is kind of dull. Whereas what I was trying to do is think on a on, on a deeper scale of decades of what kind of things we needed to do and what was potentially realizable in that time scale. Uh, so in mean, my view, because that's partly because where I come from, is that by understanding small brains, small systems of insects and other organisms that we can actually directly manipulate single cells and turn them on and off and see their function uh, in a network, that is going to be the way that we will perhaps develop principles that we can then apply to much more complicated, infinitely more complicated uh, nervous systems like the the human brain. But just to give your, your listeners an idea of the complexity of what we're talking about, The lobster's stomach is composed of 30 neurons which produce a rhythm, or they produce two rhythms, and this enables the lobster's stomach to grind up its food. We don't understand how those 30 neurons produce those rhythms, why they do what they do. Uh, We can model them in a computer, we know everything about those neurons, and yet a simple thing, like a rhythm, an emergent property out of these neurons, we don't understand how that works. And that, I think, is the, the real challenge, that our inability to understand very simple systems, which I suspect aren't that far off from being like a little robot, like the lobster stomach or a maggot, which I've spent most of my career studying. The fact that we are decades away from understanding that shows quite how challenging it will be to really understand the human brain.
0: Well, I'm so glad you are still studying the fruit fly and the maggots um, because it does sound like it's the the future. So even though it may not sound like it, it does sound like that is. So thank you so much for sharing your passion and insight and your great amount of research with us because um, not only have you provided so much fascinating information, but you've done it in a way that is highly accessible and really engaging. So um, thank you so much for your book, but also for your wonderful chat today. It's just been such a pleasure.
1: Okay. You're very welcome, Amy. That's very kind of you. It's been great being here.
0: I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3 R FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.